Hello and welcome to the Bull Mountain Brothers Podcast with your hosts, Ramsey Rutschke, Riley Rutschke, and Sean Morris. I just wanted to take a moment of your time to talk to you about one of our sponsors, F&H Contracting and Fence, located in Billings, Montana. If you're looking to spruce up your yard or want a little more privacy for them summer backyard barbecues, or maybe you just need part of your fence repaired, contact our friends at F&H Contracting and Fence by texting 406-661-7484. From front yards to farm yards and even chain link to vinyl, they've got you covered. Now back to the action. So Matt, I was on my way to work this morning and couldn't you believe it? Along the side of the road, I think I saw every species of upland bird that Montana has to offer. And it really got me thinking about my old bird dog and my old shotgun. And I think I want to pick the shotgun back up and get back at it. I'm down one thing though. And I think that's a new bird dog. How do I, would you got any suggestions? Well, I got you covered there, Riley. Our great friends, Craig and Carrie over at Mag- Magic City Gun Dogs. They have outstanding German short hair pointers. Well, I've never had a German short hair pointer. What makes them so outstanding? Well, they have great bloodlines, outstanding temperament, and their dogs always aim to please. Well, that actually kind of sounds like it's right up my alley. Uh, how would I get a hold of one of these dogs? Well, they actually have a litter coming up this spring. You can reach Craig or Kerry at magiccitygundogs.com or at 406-861-5709 to reserve your puppy now. What is up, and welcome back to another episode of the Bull Mountain Brothers Podcast. What's up, boys? I thought you were going to ask how we're doing. I had I had something like well, I was I was actually trying to come up with something clever because Matt's not here to say that Matt's not here. Matt's not here. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. <laughs> uh, Sean and I were just talking seconds ago about how our usual recap intro is going to be much shorter today than normal for uh, a couple of reasons, but mainly because last weekend kind of sucked. I feel like last weekend, actually, we have a lot to talk about it, but I feel like every instance is such a, like you, you can explain what happened. So like quickly, I mean, there's not, it's not really, there's not a long story to it. You know, it's not like Riley telling a hunting story, so it can go, (laughs) it it can go pretty quickly. It's going to be efficient. Yeah, well, I'd say I had an interesting week last week where I was able to leave on a Thursday night for the first time this year, which was nice, instead of a Friday morning early. And our main goal was to go get Matt a bull because he still has a tag left and he put all the effort in to helping me get mine. So we headed out, you know, of course, and I don't know if this happened for you guys too, but what it seemed like was all of the the situations going into last weekend were perfect starting Monday where it was going to be cooler, no moon. Like it was feeling good. I I felt good for you guys right about Wednesday. All of a sudden you go and look at the weather and it's two inches of rain by Monday. And we didn't think that it was going to be that big a deal, but we got there Thursday night and it was already already raining and uh we tried hunting friday morning didn't see anything pouring it was pouring i literally the way we had it set up was matt finally got to sit in the blind that we've had out forever the one that we can't get to because we run into elk every time we get in there 
Um, so he was there and I was outside calling in the pouring rain and the wind froze my ass off. Actually, I have a, I have a good story for Sean. I don't know if I told him this yet, but we decided that we were going to do your little trick with the boots and the estrus. Mm. So we're, and actually what was kind of cool is Matt's daughter was there with us, his 13 year old daughter. And she likes to go elk hunting. So it was kind of fun. And I like, you know, I'm out. We like to teach her stuff. And we had that bottle in the, in the ranger waiting for it to get um, light out. And she's like, what is that? And I was like, here, smell this. And I opened the bottle. And of course, like the aroma. And she's like, oh my God, close that back up. Right at that time, there was a wasp on my arm. Matt thought it was the great idea to swat this wasp on my arm, in turns pouring elk estrus all over my arm. So that's how my day started, was smelling like an elk in heat for the rest of the day. Uh, but yeah, we we ended up, what was actually kind of cool is at the end of the day, and I'll rush this story because there's really, I have nothing to say at all, really. I saw two elk. Uh, we called one bull in um, that night, super skittish, couldn't get him to come off the hill. We went after him, couldn't find him again. But I will say the coolest thing is that Matt and I have been, I mean, we all kind of know this from our film and from when you guys, I mean, did you ever get to come out with us in August or no? No, I don't think I did. But Ramsey did. Uh, we had been getting these bulls coming up this one canyon almost religiously. We finally found where they were, where they were uh, bedding now, which is really cool. And uh, I don't know if you remember like... A month ago, we were watching a video together where this guy was like, I don't know, he was somewhere in Montana and he was like backed up uh, like in a sandstone cave. Do you remember seeing this video? And he called a bull into like five yards because they like hang out on these sandstone rock outcroppings. Well, that's exactly what we found. We found this giant like 100, 100 yard square area of giant rocks and they there's these little caves on the edge. And they're all just betting on the edge because it's, it's like the highest point. And uh, it was just really cool to see. So maybe if we can get in there before the end of the season, if he gets to come back from South Dakota, we can go. We'd like to get in there and, and see. But but yeah, that's it. That's that's all I have. I ended up coming home because of the rain. So You know, Ramsey and I's Saturday well, wasn't any different. Let, let me just tell you that there are pros and cons to having game cameras on the property that you're hunting. Pros being you know what's in there. Cons being you know what's in there the day before you go out there. Or the four days before that you go yeah. out there. So four days at the exact same time every morning, not even like early morning, like 8.30, 9 o'clock, elk all over my camera. Saturday, we go in there super early. That was the first camera we checked, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we walked down in it. We didn't even drive down in it, which is... Normal for you guys. Normal for us. Um, check the camera. Elk. It's been out there for a while because we didn't hunt it last weekend. And I, I'd say there's probably 14 or 15 days on the camera. Elk on it nearly every day. But... Apparently the elk don't like rain either because there wasn't. No, was it raining while you guys were out there? Uh, it yeah. poured rain on us till 
it quit till about the time that you came out there is when it. Oh yes, out. I did do something Saturday. I was summoned by my boys to uh, bring them lunch because they forgot it at the house. So mm-hmm. I did meet up with them and give them, and I accidentally bought some habanero hot salsa. It ended up actually it was pretty good. Actually. You ended up eating it, huh? Yeah, good. But uh, pretty much Saturday, like mule deer everywhere. There was, and we tried. We went to essentially every efficient spot that we know on this property for elk and called and called, located or did locate bugles, everything, nothing back. And I don't know if it was because we, I mean, realistically, you, I mean, when it's pouring rain like that, you can't hear shit. I mean, really, right. if something was bugling in a can, canyon three you know two or three canyons over we wouldn't be able to hear it well, well that's where and we were i have at. noticed that uh we bought these really nice rain jackets they're super noisy yeah when it's raining like that like because you can hear it on your shoulders i mean mm-hmm. the wind wasn't blowing or nothing so it was super quiet and you could just all you could hear was just the raindrops on the jacket and i was like so we saw sweet we saw i mean we hunted this this property last year and the biggest deer, I mean, realistically, that we had naked eyes on was probably the one we had uh, Sven go after. Yeah, that no, was, I did. I that's not true. Uh, other than the one in the in in, in the yeah, north, in the yeah, south part, yeah, the south section. But it's uh, realistically like any huntable deer we had last year. I mean, they were dinks. I mean, realistically, they weren't. I mean, there was they no, weren't mature. No, and. This year, it is kind of shocking the amount of just, I mean, good size, mature deer that are out there this year. It's kind of funny because I'm all, I'm not shocked because Ramsey and I went in there the end of archery last year. And how many do you think you were in that herd that you found? There was probably 15 to 20, but none of them were like piqued my interest mature. No, exactly. But I think that all those bucks survived. And that's what you're seeing this year. Right. And I think that. I mean, there's still green grass everywhere out there. So yeah, I think they will, food. I think it will sustain the population. I think they left last year just because there was nothing to eat. Yeah. No, it, it was. But, you know, I mean, in all honesty, Saturday wasn't a complete waste because we did oh, yeah. glass up some pretty, I mean, a couple decent antelope. Oh, oh that yeah. I put a stock in a meal deer on Saturday, too. He did, and it was actually a little bit of me talking him into it, in a sense, because I'm like, dude, that is the that was like the that's, biggest that's three. One point of the biggest three points I've, I've ever, ever seen, in, seen in my life. I mean, he was huge. Are you guys getting a little trigger happy? I don't. Not. I mean, not without. I think probably. that deer would have been a last two or three weekends for me during rifle oh, season. Really? But with a bow, never taken an animal with my bow. Oh, he did. Long. He did attempt to stalk on it, and it. Did you, did you bump it or no? It just it was in an open field, yeah. and so there was no good cover. And I got what was it, ninety yards was the closest we got. Yeah, and but I just we thought to ourselves, we're like, man, we could really push this into the tree line, but if we don't, they're gonna be there in two weeks. Right. I mean, so we basically kind of made Saturday a wrap. After we stayed out there a lot later than our not so optimistic opinions made at about 8 a.m. that morning saying that oh, we're going to leave at noon. We actually made we at 3:30 or Yeah, 4. we stayed out there um a good chunk of the day just 
looking at different spots. And yeah, things. I was surprised because you guys said that you were going to leave right after I left, and um, you guys came back and you were you were super tired. Yeah. Well, and then Saturday or Sunday comes around, and this is actually kind of a it's it's a I would say a fairly funny story. It's your biggest moment of the year, I would say though. Yeah. We uh, actually decided to go in a different way that we normally do, and even a different way than Riley and I did, um, somewhat. A very common way that we go in during rifle season. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. what you guys are talking about. And so essentially what you do is is you go through one gate, and you are cruising a pasture field, essentially. Um, With a giant canyon in the middle of it. Yeah. And you cruise that, and then you basically get up, and it's just a big open field uh, with timber on the that'd be east, the side. east side. And first of all, we stopped, and we actually glassed up some mule deer, and we actually went in a little bit late. I mean, we were a little late that morning, but we stopped, and we glassed some mule deer in a in a like an irrigated field area, or well, non-irrigated, but farmland area. And we glassed up some mule deer, and we we're like, you know, I mean, that's a thinking to ourselves like that's a good decent little buck i mean there's you know and it was cool to cool to kind of stop and look at that and then uh riley dropped his phone i'm sorry uh <laughs> that is exactly what that was but uh no and we kept going and <laughs> it was kind of one of those things because i guess backstory on those deer is we were driving and we, normally you see antelope in that field and so we're looking at it and it goes that's not the same color as an antelope and ramsey goes is that elk are those elk out there? Because we were a ways away from them, and they were big and like dark figures, you know. And it was just sunlight ish. And I, I Ramsey didn't have his bino harness on yet, so I pulled mine out and I looked up and I was like, "No, nope, mule deer. Oh, good buck, you know, whatever." And we kept going, and that we cruise around a canyon and come basically come through to an open field before timber, and I didn't even see it yet. And Ramsey goes, "Yeah, that's the elk over there." And I went, what? And I turn and look, and there's just a mature six-point bull in the middle of this field walking straight at us at probably 800 yards. And what did? how did you... Deja vu. Deja vu. Dude. Well, it wouldn't be deja vu. It's just like... But it, uh, it, no, that's exactly but it, what happened it, to us last it, year. It really was, though, because except we, we were on the north end of the same field. But so I'd, in talking with the landowner, and it all, all made sense to me, so... There there's is, a berm. There's a berm that is owned by the state, and there's an easement that runs through the middle of the this property. Well, the cows don't eat the grass on this easement, and you can't see it from any road, the side of this easement, so they just pack in along this easement and eat all the green grass that the cows can't get to. And... Last year, me and Riley went out the last day of archery season, and here's this bull walking out of this easement. And so I'm sitting here like, wow, I've seen this before, except this bull is significantly larger hmm, right. than the bull that we saw last year. I mean, he he skylined himself, and you just – I mean, for a second there, we didn't even say anything. We were just, like, looking at this bull – it was a, it was like a, because in all reality, that was the first elk this season that either of us have laid first our naked huntable eyes on. elk. Cause I mean, like I said, when, when, when we were out with Warren and stuff, yeah, sure. I glassed a bull on a ridgeline that was really far away that wasn't huntable, 
but in this case, it was it was just kind of like a a surreal moment because it was like, holy, you know, these things exist out here. Like, <laughs> you know, we have them on cameras, and really, Ramsey and I weighed about every single possible option that we could do in a span of about fifteen to thirty seconds. Do we do this? Do we do that? That was basically our conversation, and I was like, well, we can't get any closer. He's in the middle of the field. He's an un or he's basically a non-huntable elk at this point because we can't close 800 yards in the middle of a field where he can just stare at us. And so essentially we got out and this really summed up our fear that we had going into this weekend was that rut was over in this area is I got out of the, the, the ranger and I, I don't think he really even knew we were there realistically because he was still walking towards us when, when we saw him and I cow called and he stopped and kind of looked in our general direction and then just turned and kept walking the other way. And I went up, oh, looked at Ramsey and I go, rut's over. And, um, we made the decision that, you know what? He's heading for that timber line. We're going to go in and try and drop down below him and cut him off. And so we, I mean, we hauled ass, got to a spot and we were still, a fair distance away from him. And then all of a sudden this guy goes, Oh shit, there he is. And he's literally what? what at 200 the, yards, probably 200 yards from us that he closed that much ground. I mean, he was at that point, he was probably six, seven, 800 yards from where we saw him. And he was not in a hurry. We didn't spook him at all. He was just walking mm-hmm. and we saw him. He actually didn't know we were there when we stopped the Ranger and we got out and went in after him. And basically got into the timber that was below. It was kind of a, a coulee with multiple entrances. And so, just to preface on our decision, when me and Sean, me and Sean have had the same exact scenario happen during shoulder season when we saw the herd of bulls. They walked the same route, and so here we are thinking, we know right where this bull's going to go, like. Then, you know, miraculously elk doing elk things. We get down there and we're calling. And I mean, we thought we had this thing just game over. One of us was going to get a shot, whatever. Never saw him again. No, never even heard a. I mean, that's it. That really, when we realized that we felt like rut was over, was because we didn't even hear even like a scratch bugle or anything. I mean, it was just a, it was quiet. And that really, <laughs> and then, I mean, we got to a place where there was only one place he could have walked out. That we would we have seen have. him any any single direction that he went from what elk normally do on that property. We would have had eyes on him and been able to make it. Yeah, he he might have been three four hundred yards in some spots, but we would have right. known where he was. We never saw him. Maybe he no. bedded down, and that's. The only thing I, I would say, maybe he bedded down and you guys bumped him out later or never saw him again. Because, well, I mean, what time of the day was it? So the place we it refer was, to as the draw yeah. is the only place he could have gone yeah. to where we wouldn't have eyes on unless him. Unless he hot, just, just, And we walked the entire thing. Unless he did see us when we crossed and he beelined it north. But, you know, and that was like a super cool experience that, that we, you know... I'd like to say deserved to have this. You year. guys actually got to hunt is really what happened. Yeah. You got to. Well, that's not even the best part. <coughs> if I'm being honest. Okay. 
that really took a turn for the worse with our with our um, mentality because, I mean, anytime you have a situation like that, even though technically that bull really wasn't huntable for us at, at the most, at the peak of, of seeing him. Um, but obviously, the you know, your blood's rushing. We were feeling like this is, you know, we're actually being able to hunt elk, you know. That, and so we basically kept cruising, going to actually, we were moving to another spot that we knew we had that elk were going to be in. I mean, we just always know that they go there, whether it's today, tomorrow, or, you know, and so we were actually cruising in that spot. And this is the funny part is I, we kept seeing mule deer and we kept stopping and like looking at them just, just a, just the glass. And we kept going and we were still a little ways away from our spot that we we're trying to get to. And I see, in the in these we were basically up on top you know like right where you and i walked we were right there and i see these mule deer does jet out of this tree tree line and i was like oh that's cool and then all of a sudden my head hits the windshield on the ranger because ramsey comes to an abrupt stop and he and i go what and he goes bull and i went what and i turned i did i never got eyes on him he goes that he literally goes, there was a bull right there. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I was like, are you sure it wasn't a mule deer or something? And we both got out and he goes, his tracks are right here. And he walks me right to his tracks. And I was like, holy shit, there was a bull. And it was what, like 80 yards from the Oh, ranger? yeah. I mean. I would disown you if you mixed up a mule deer and an elk. <laughs> I just, it's one of those animals where like, as long as I've been hunting, like, yeah, there's times where I'm like, oh, is that an elk? And I'm like, but there's times when you see an elk and your brain just immediately like that's an elk yeah. that and his giant protruding antlers and you're sure this isn't the same one that you were chasing it right? was not the same one it was much larger hmm. and then basically we stopped and he didn't even leave in a hurry right i mean he just kind of i mean looking at his tracks he just walked yeah and so but in the in the 15 to 30 seconds that I had to convince Sean that there was actually an elk standing there, I think he got away from yeah. us. And well, then that, did that kind of end your guys' day? Or? I took off after. I grabbed my bow and I went in hiking after him. And I basically said, pick me up at the camera that was below us. Right. So I gave him what I... I waited 20 minutes before I even started the ranger just to give you a head. And I've, I've followed his tracks for a while. And... Uh, a while. And they I knew they were his because... I could put my boot next to one and it would look the exact same. Yeah. I just, and then I went, so I kind of backtracked and then came down a road that we, it's the northernmost part of this property and there's a trail that runs down a ravine. And I start driving down this ravine and I'm like, oh, let's look at cow tracks. And then I look at them and I'm like, let's have dew claws. Biggest bull tracks ever. They were this big. Hmm. They were the biggest bull elk tracks I've ever seen in my life. And there was like five sets of tracks straight down our tracks from yesterday in the mud. Ah. I was like, Classic. oh. Well. So I think it's it's crazy to think that you guys kind of changed your game plan solely based off of the weather. And for the one time you didn't hike probably five to six miles a day, you actually were in the the ranger a little bit, is the one time you accidentally. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, we've never walked up to that spot where we bumped that bull out of but i think sean and i did yeah we did but we were we always walked from underneath and i think if we'd have done that that day we probably would have it's kind of funny how we were talking at the beginning of the episode about how our intro was gonna be super short yeah. and you guys just told the riley story <laughs> 
We did. We but, efficiently told it though. But uh, why don't you tell this the last bit of what happened this last weekend? All right. Oh, well, you guys okay. kind of done. You, well, either way, we went. We kind of drove around for a little bit, checked cameras, whatever. Didn't have anything on them from the night before. Drove back up on top, and we were glassing for antelope because it starts next weekend, and we have tags for this area. Just an absolute monster antelope is down in the fields. So you got you got you guys kind of excited for that, or? Um, no, because Dad called dibs on it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's like, oh, yeah. And then I started telling him, I was like, yeah, it's probably pushing 17 inches. And he's like, so I'm shooting it then? And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess. Ramsey must be SOL then because I called dibs on that other one. Yeah. Well, I, fil- right. I filmed one over in our other spot that's that's pushing 50. Okay, sorry. <laughs> he doesn't know about that. No, but. Uh, I thought I showed him the phone. We were sitting there kind of glassing it, and the landowner ended up showing up. And we talked to him for you know, probably close to an hour. And about halfway through, I get a phone call from, from Riley. And I didn't answer it because I was talking to uh, the landowner. And Sean answered it. And he's like, hey, Josh shot a bull and he needs help packing it out. And I was like, ah, thinking that he's in his usual spot, which is about a three and a half hour drive. And I'm like... Man, I've heard stories about that. That doesn't sound like a fun pack out. Well, come to find out, he was actually where you where you usually where I usually hunt. And so I was like, oh well, yeah, that's easy. Let's go do it. And so ended up being just as worse of a hike as the other spot. But yeah. continue on when it rode. <laughs> so Riley, the whole time because I took a little bit longer than I, I was kind of lackadaisical about getting over to the house to leave. And Riley's like, well, he's probably going to have it packed out, just knowing Josh by the time we get there. And we get there, high halt. I didn't break any speed limits on the way there, but we made it there in a timely manner. And what was it, about two minutes later? It wasn't even that. It was felt like 45 seconds. Yeah. Um, Josh and his girlfriend came around the corner with the first load of the elk. Which is crazy because... Between the time I had called Sean and the time that we got there, it would have been three hours. Two or three, yeah. And we got there right as there. I mean, they had the, a front couple quarter hun- and a couple rear. quarters, was it? Yeah. And so Josh being Josh tells us, yeah, it's just right at the top of this hill. Oh, that's nothing, yeah. you know. So we start heading into it and we did good on the way in there. And we get over the first hill. And Josh is like, oh, yeah, it's just right over this hill. And we get over this little hump, and it's another, like, three-quarters of a mile straight up a mountain. And I was like, oh, cool. And uh, I didn't really get tired until probably the last 60 yards of Getting going to up the this elk. hill. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, I know that. I was like, if I get over this hill and there's another hill, <laughs> I don't know if I could make it. They're going to have to call air support and get me out of here but uh no we finally got to the top of that hill and that was a little it was kind of off the backside, and there was a front quarter a rear quarter and then the back straps bit, yeah. tenderloins and the head and so josh took the back straps and the tenderloins and the rest of the meat 
in the head and then i threw a quarter the rear quarter on and riley took whatever was left Mm -hmm. and from the time we got there to the time we left i think the pack out was a total of three hours but coming down was a tenth hardness of going up it was literally cake i don't think we stopped one time going down just a couple times for you to catch up because me and Josh had kind of <laughs> hauled ass, but no, it was fine. Uh, it was cool though. I'm I'm happy for Josh. I mean, the dude, the dude's an elk hunt machine and public land. Again, he gets it done on public land. So um, we were we were more than happy to go. I mean, that's good karma, and we like being out there. I mean, the whole time we we're out there, we we bumped a, a big antelope at like 80 yards. Yeah. We bumped a bunch of mule deer, and then we get to where Josh's elk is, and there's just like herds of elk everywhere. <laughs> Oh yeah, big old bull screaming the entire time we were there. And then I found a little deadhead, and I know it was cool. It was fun. I'm glad we went and did it. I'm glad that, um, and it was cool. Josh's girlfriend actually called the bull in for him. Shot it, mama. Shot it at 15 yards frontal, and he didn't go 80 yards. I think Josh said and tipped over. So it was cool. It was, it's been a cool elk season for everybody except for you two. <laughs> but uh, maybe you guys. I mean, you guys are going to hunt this weekend, right? Yeah, we're going to do a little morning. Do some elk and then do some antelope. Yeah. Well, awesome. I'm going to give our audience a little... We decided to give the audience a little break from the elk talk, which has been the last month of just elk. Um, and we brought in a guest this week that we're very happy to have. I'm going to let you tell your credentials because I I don't know. I want to get it right. Um, but basically, we have a waterfowl... Um, would you call yourself a professional? Expert? Oh, no. No, just a waterfowl hunter. Just a waterfowl hunter. <laughs> but uh, very well... Um, I mean, you spent a lot of time, spent a lot, por- good portion of your life with Ducks Unlimited being a, being a, a well, member and 35 years, I suppose. So yeah, we have Bruce Posey on the podcast today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in Ducks Unlimited first? And then I would like to know, uh, let's get that first and then we're going to go to break and when we get back. I would love to know about your upbringing. Um, cause I don't even know, you know, I, you're a family friend of ours, but, uh, I don't know your upbringing of in hunt in the hunting world. Um, how, you know, what age you started and whatnot. And I'd like to hear that, but for now, why don't you tell us your credentials and, and whatnot? So I, <clears throat> excuse me, I started with Ducks Unlimited in 1986 and I started because I just need an excuse to have a party on a Wednesday night, and that was a DU banquet. <laughs> well, the fact of the matter was is that they came and asked a, a friend of mine to start the first ever couples chapter in Montana. Ducks Unlimited prior to that has always had always been a stag event. That was just the nature of the beast. So we agreed to do that, and our first year went pretty well. In our second year, I think I paid $1,800 to settle the bill. They didn't go so well. And the fact of the matter is the local DU committee was mad at us because we'd brought women in. We got set up, you know, typical deal. That was fine. So I didn't do anything for a couple, three years, and then the Billings chapter started to fail, that meaning that the attendance was going down. And I got asked again to come help, and so I did. And then from there on, the chapter built and built and built until a group of young men that I had brought in turned it in from what had been, you know, maybe a 200-person event to a 600-person event. And they were doing $100,000 in the night, and they were doing great. Well, they asked me to step up, step up, and I became a state chairman. Then they asked me to step up onto the board 
of the National Board of DU. And eventually, I became a regional vice president, and then I became a senior vice president, which your senior vice president in DU, there are seven of us. In those days, there's eight now. In those days, there were seven of us, and we controlled all fundraising for the United States. That was our job. And in those days, I had the states of Idaho, Utah, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Nebraska and Kansas. Jeez. Where it was my territory. And we it was a great territory. And of course it's where we raised all the ducks, right? Right. It was in the prairie pothole. And that ended for me in twenty twelve as far as a senior went. I served my four years as a senior and four years as a regional and um, I still get involved with the committees. I still do stuff with DU. I'm now on the Emeritus Board, which is a fancy way of sewing, saying all the old guys, <laughs> you can go hunt and fish with each other anymore. We we don't need you all that much. <clears throat> we do some other things. We do the scholarship program now. DU has a very nice scholarship program for high school kids. We run that scholarship program. We do a few things, but, you know, we get together and have some fun hunts and some fun fishes, so... That's that's kind of my story. Very cool. Um, well, that's a little bit on who we've got here tonight. We're going to basically go to break real quick. And when we get back, we're going to dive even further in the, into that. Because I think what was really cool is last week we had a big talk about elk management, right? Yes. This week we're going to have – we're going to get a little bit away from the – that's more politicky, more – uh, opinionated. And this week, I think we're going to, it's a good opportunity to talk to Bruce about conservation. Uh, something that I would say is right up your alley, something you spent most of your life understanding and, and excelling in. Conservation was my passion. Yes. That's so one passion. So, uh, I think that'll be something really, really awesome and, uh, uplifting to talk about. And then we'll talk a lot about hunting and, uh, maybe we'll get Sean interested in, uh, a little bit of waterfowl stuff. Uh, but this this episode here, we thought it was a great time to bring Bruce on in the spirit of waterfowl just opened in Montana. So uh, in that spirit, and to get a little bit away from the big game hunting, uh, Bruce is here, and we're going to go to break real quick, and we'll get right back into it when we get back. So we'll be right back. I just said that 10 times, but we'll be right back. <laughs> Jesus. Sean, I had to laugh the other day. Do you remember that time that Matt sunk his pickup in the creek? Oh, I absolutely do. That was just a nightmare. Yeah, that really sucked, and I was the one that ended up cleaning it up. You know, do you know anybody that could take care of that for me next time? You know, believe it or not, uh, the guys down at Yellowstone Detailing here in Billings, Montana, they could take care of that real quick for you. Um, anything from cars to trucks, anything that really goes down the highway, whether you're putting it in the water, putting it in the trees for a good weekend with the family, they could easily clean that up for you and get you right back out where you want to be. And and how would I get a hold of these guys? Uh, you can actually get a hold of the guys down at Yellowstone Detailing at 406-861-9553. Sweet. All right, I'll bring us back in without saying uh, we'll be right back 10 more times. How does that sound? But we will that, that be right back. Right <laughs> back. Uh, so, yeah, Bruce, I a couple things before we get into this real quick. Just for the audience that doesn't know, just because I, I heard it in your conversation and I think it's good information for those that don't know. And, and I don't even know if you know about what this is, but could you clarify when you were talking about the, the prairie pots, what that is? Absolutely. So when the glaciers came down, they literally stopped at the Missouri River. And then they receded northward from the Missouri. And it created, and as they went north, they scoured out the ground. 
and they created all these potholes. And that became the Prairie Pothole Region. And it literally runs from the Rocky Mountain Front, um, from the Blackfoot Reservation, if you would, clear over into the Dakotas. And then, of course, it runs a long ways up in Canada as well. And it's there that most of North America's waterfowl, at least that which runs down the central flyway, is raised. Canada used to claim it was all raised in Saskatchewan, a little bit in Alberta, and Manitoba. Now North and South Dakota and Montana claim we raise more ducks than they do. You know, just a sense of pride deal. But the fact matter, that's the prairie pothole region, and that is the best of the best habitat for the raising of ducks in North America. Were you aware of that? No. Yeah, it's really cool. There's actually a lot of um there's guys that do like hay field hunts on the edge of these pots all over Canada, and there's a lot of cool it's really cool video of uh you know, nesting birds before they go out, you know, months before they go out. Well, it have to be a long ways before they go out, but um, it's a really cool area. If you're, if you're a person that's into waterfowl hunting, that's kind of like your biggest starting point to check the coolest stuff out. I mean, when you want to see millions and millions of ducks swarming, that's, that's there. So is, is that where they do most of the banding on birds then? Or, you know, it, it, they band all over. I, I've only shot two banded birds, interestingly enough. The one band that I, bird I shot came out of the Yukon Territory. Oh, okay. That's funny. Um, Do you remember where yours came out? Yeah, of? it was out of the Alaska Peninsula or down basically very close to where you shot yours. Yeah. So as somebody that is not, um, this uh, has been used a lot tonight, but well-versed in the, in the um, waterfowl hunting, so banded birds, can I get a little background on basically what that, I mean, just really what the idea of that is? Sure. There, and there's a couple different ways. A banded bird, a true banded bird, you capture a bird when they're younger, you put a band on them, a hunter harvests that bird somewhere, and then it has a number on it and a phone number, and you call that in. And then they send you a little report or you'd go on the computer and put the number in and they send you a little report. Well, that tells them how those birds are traveling. And it gives them an idea of their migratory corridors and those types of things. Now, the other thing, and I've only seen one of these shot, my buddy shot it, they actually put on the back of the bird a homing device. They look like a little spaceship. They got a back and they got an antenna coming up. And he actually shot one of those up in Canada. That happened to have been a sandhill crane that had it on, but it was the same purpose. Although they were actually tracking that bird all the time where it was going. But it, it's a matter of, we have to figure out, when Ducks Unlimited got started, was in the droughts of the 30s, and there were no more birds. And most of the bird hunters were back in the East Coast. They came out of the Chesapeake Bay Area, they came out of New York. And so they started this organization because they knew the birds were raised in Canada that they were getting. So over the years, the North American waterfowl surveys, they take this, they, they take all this information, including when they go out and see the breeding grounds and they go out and count nest counts and they see the broods on the water, et cetera, all of that. They fly in the fall to see what's going on. But they also take this bands and it helps them determine 
which birds are of concern. As an example, the pintails have been of concern for a long time. They maybe think they know what's going on, maybe not. Um, mallards are not much of concern. Obviously, Canada geese are not of concern at all anymore. They're everywhere. <laughs> but it's those types of things that these surveys and these bands do to help. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Right, and they'll relay their information over to fish, wildlife, and parks in their different regions, and it might influence bag limits, um, stuff like that. Uh, there's actually, we had some interesting bands one time. Uh, they were plastic, and they were from a golf course in Colorado where they were they were raising, uh, you know, young ducks on their and then letting them go on the wild geese to be. And yeah, we shot two plastic ones. My buddies did, but um, yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, that I don't know as as a waterfowl hunter, would you say like that's kind of like what would you describe shooting a banded duck as? Like, what is that? Is that that's not what you're out there for? But it's like something that's amazing when it happens because it's so different. It's the gold medal. Right. It's the gold medal of the hunt. You know, now you get to get the band. You get to help everybody out, see where this bird came from. I mean, the first one I shot was up in Canada, and it had been banded a mile away. I mean, it was no nothing spectacular. This other one I shot on the Clark's Fork, and it was in the Yukon. I mean... And it had been banded the year before, so it was at least a two-year-old duck. And it's, yeah, it's, it's the gold medal. It's one of those things that everyone likes, and then you get to put it on your langer, and you get all these, you know, well, I don't. I got two. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, some of these guys have 8, 10, 12, 15 bands in their landers. I know a guy. See, I have become really good friends with, um, and he's actually been on the podcast, Alan Taylor. Um, he's a duck hunting guy. You'd really like him. Uh, they have... His brother does it. Um, he has a guiding service in South Dakota for waterfowl. They have a really cool place. Twice now, and I I don't remember the story exactly. I don't know if you do, or you, but they were out like last year, and the well, group. Okay, so I think the story was the kids were supposed to come out with them, and they stayed up way too late or whatever and didn't oh, wake up. Oh, he said that. I actually remember him telling the stories because it was too cold out that morning. Okay. And, and they had the dogs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just him and his brother, and they ended up shooting, what, four geese. All of them were banded. All four of them were banded. Really? Yeah. yeah. And then wow. they did it again like three weeks ago with like two two geese. Yeah. They, his daughter and his son shot two geese off the same place they were banded. Wow. I was like, what a lucky guy that is. <laughs> so as far no as joke. like the, the, the banding goes, I mean, like – if you could put it into a percentage, I mean, what is your chances of shooting a banded bird? Oh, I would guess maybe one in a thousand. Oh, it's just no. a guess. Yeah, I'd say. I mean, it's, it's I, less than one. You have you've never shot a banded. I'm, okay, I've been with groups where we've shot geese, where there was banded geese, and it just goes to the people who took us out there. But right, me personally, I've never shot a bird and knew that I shot that bird and it had a band on. And I would say it in let me know if you think this is true or not. I would say you have more likelihood of shooting a banded goose than a banded duck. And I don't know if that's true or not, but. Well, that's an interesting comment because of the groups of guys I hunt with, and we literally hunt from the first of the season to the end of the season. We probably get, of our 100 days, I bet we get 60 to 80 in. We've never shot a banded goose. 
Really? Never. See, I've the wow. only banded thing I've ever shot was a was a hen green wing teal. And I shot it off a stock pond that we hunt in the middle of sagebrush. It's the most unreal pond on the planet. I mean, we, it's an opening weekend pond, and uh, we, uh, it's unreal. The green heads, and I mean, you shoot exotics, you know, not exotics, but I mean, you get Godwall, redheads, Gadwall. I mean, it's a cool spot, but yeah, that one time I shot a hen green wing teal and it had this tiny little band on it, and she was five years old from from oh. uh, from that uh, over in Alaska, so that was cool. That's just because of the place she'd been going. I mean, how many people actually duck hunt in that area? No, not a lot. But <laughs> so, how do they like these? So obviously, it's per region that it kind of separates. Um, like it could be from the from Alaska, it could be from Canada, and like who basically is this kind of like a like a renowned? Um, basically, when you shoot a banded bird, there's organizations that put that band on that bird and they obviously talk amongst themselves about like population and how much they've banded. Correct. Yeah. What happens is that, well, at, at the Red Rock lakes in Montana, they ban ducks every year. I don't know if they ban 10 or 20 or whatever, but they ban ducks every year. We ban ducks around other spots in Montana from time to time. And they just all go into a central depository if you would the information and so when you call that number in and it the you call the phone number and you put your number in then that depository knows where all these birds are coming from because birds have no concept about the canadian border or the mexican border they're true north american waterfowl then it's a matter of the mex it's a matter of mexico united states and canada keeping all this data and it's important because the birds that are raised in Canada many times winter in Mexico. And so we have to have all that knowledge. They were born up here, but they're getting down here. And how do we get that bird from the Yukon or the Northwest Territories up in the arboreal forests? How do we get them down to the Gulf of Mexico, down to the Yucatan? Down, quite honestly, they go down into South America. What do we need to do to help them? Makes sense. Which brings you into the most important concept of Ducks Unlimited itself, which is habitat rehabilitation yeah, with well, that data. Yeah, Ducks Unlimited is an organization that conserves wetlands and associated uplands for all animals that use them. So obviously in the wetlands, white-tailed deer are all the time, just as an example. So is a skunk. So are the fox and the others. They're all there. So we, Ducks Unlimited, our mission is to preserve not only the wetland, but the associated upland. And many times what happens, particularly if you go down the Mississippi alluvial valley, those birds will run out of food. You know, they're going down to the Gulf, but there's nothing to eat. So many times now, and we have great relationships with not only the ranchers, pick up Montana with ranchers, but you go down further and south with farmers and they'll flood their rice fields. And these birds will come down and they'll have these flooded rice fields to eat in. And that way we can get them healthy down into Mexico. And then when they come back up, which they're going to do, they got to make the trip back up, right? 
3,000 miles or whatever that trip is. And so we make sure that along those lines that they have the habitat they need to succeed so that when they get to the breeding grounds, they have the ability to breed because a hen that's too thin is not going to breed. Right. I would say it would be similar to like, you know, if there was a bull that wasn't strong enough to do it, it wouldn't get done. That's correct. Um, let's get a little bit about, I'd like to know a little background on yourself, Bruce. When did you start hunting and has waterfowl always been a passion of yours? Okay. So my dad was a big game hunter. And so it, I don't know when I was three or four or five, whatever, my dad started taking me big game hunting. I'll never admit he was the best big game hunter in the world, but he loved to get out and he loved to take me out. And so we did. And I actually started, I finally got a gun and everything when I was 12 and had my permit and I could go hunt. When I was 13, I had a 13 or 14, I had a teacher who decided that I need to learn how to bow hunt. And so unlike you guys who have these nice fancy bows that, <laughs> you know, shoot flat for 90 yards, we had recurves and they were 55 pounds and we made our own arrows. We fletched our own um, feathers. We did the whole bit. We did, we had dip tubes to color the arrows with and there was no, was this the proper weight for the bow? <laughs> You know, and you only shot Fred Bear heads because that's the only kind you had. And that same gentleman got me into duck hunting. And so the first day I'd never shot a shotgun. And I shot a box of shells and didn't hit a bird. You know, I was very he, frustrated. See, Sean, there is hope for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, after that, I, I didn't really duck hunt a great deal. Then I went to college and my roommate... Um, who I was relating the story about earlier, he got me out duck hunting. We we duck hunted warm water ponds in the winter for food. And we did very well. And then once I got, I kind of got into mountain grouse hunting first. And then in, from the mountain grouse hunting, I went into duck hunting. And duck hunting is a totally different world because as you probably both know, if you're going to do it right, it's not necessarily the least expensive sport in the world. Correct. <laughs> and so eventually, you know, you build up into it and you get the good dogs and you pay for the dogs and you get the trailers and you get the 5,000 decoys that apparently we need. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's, that's kind of my story. And now I very seldom big game hunt. I'll go out if I get a call. Someone wants to go out or if someone wants to go down to the southeast part of Montana that I know fairly well and want to sh get a deer, I'll take him down there. But other than that, I spend my time bird hunting, whether it's upland or waterfowl. And now I'll leave here on Friday for 10 days to go to the northeast corner and do that very thing. Very nice. Um, do you still have a, you have a, your own dog still? I lost my dog last summer and I'm having a heck of a time finding one uh, because my age is going to be my last dog. So I'm looking for a dog that has national field champions on both sides, on both the sire and the dam side. I found one finally out in Wisconsin, and I'm strictly a yellow lab guy, and she threw all black labs. Mm, oh, <laughs> nice. We just picked up a yellow, actually. Um, my black, I have, I have to retire her because 
every time I take her out, she gets cold tail. And it's so, I just, I can't watch her be in pain anymore. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we just got a yellow. So I'm interested to see how that pans. Do you do females? Only males. Only males. Only- I couldn't remember. It's been a long time since I've been hunting with you, probably 12 years. Yeah, you, you probably hunted with buckwheat. And he was, well, he weighed about 118 pounds. He was a great big yellow. And mm-hmm. the funny thing, when he would duck hunt, he was always kind of lazy. So if we'd shoot two or three ducks like we were out on the board of directors, do you hunt? He'd go pick them all up at once because his mouth was so big. And everyone thought that was so wonderful. And I just said, nah, he's just lazy. He doesn't want to go back out. <laughs> yeah, as, as someone that's probably not been around the waterfowl stuff, Sean, I bet it's interesting. That, like duck hunting is like its own, its whole different ball game. It's it's similar to ice fishing, I want to say. I don't know if, if that makes sense to anybody in here. Do you get what I'm saying? Like it's community driven. Um, you go from hunting in groups of like one or two to potentially, I mean, seven to nine guys is not rare. No, not rare at all. Um, and it's very social. You're you're sitting in a, we hunt a lot of ditches. We used to hunt a lot of layouts. Uh, we hunt more ditches and brush areas now. But yeah, it, it's very social. And quite honestly, it's quite fun because if you miss, you hear about it for a long time. <laughs> right. There's so many cliches and stuff that go with duck hunting too. I where if, I don't know if, sorry to interrupt you, but I don't know if that statement really wants me, uh, gets me ready for, for duck hunting. What's that? Oh, if talking you, shit to you? If you miss, Sean, I've, hear I've about been, it. I saw you shoot a turkey this year out of the air. I've been duck hunting for 10 years and I still miss all the time. Yeah. It's just, I mean, you're shooting steel shots. So. I mean, you, you get a, a golden eye or a teal that comes just bombing in through there and you're six feet behind the thing by the time you pull the trigger. I mean, it, it happens. But I think there's a lot of cliches that go along with duck hunting that like, it's just, it's so specific to uh waterfowl hunting that as a waterfowl hunter you know it very well but a lot of people you know like everybody has their own way they call a shot right every every group has a way they call a shot every group has their way you know you might we we like to hunt with guys that that can call well because i don't i don't know how to explain it like when you have the guy in there that that wants to learn uh, i wish he would have just learned at home before he came out because it's a big big difference but um Kid, do you have, you know, because we talk about this sometimes, but and I, I'm interested to know from a guy that's been doing it so long. Do you have a favorite favorite duck on the planet? Oh, by far the mallard, because that's what I like to eat the best. Okay, most the duck that's most fun to shoot, in my opinion, is the uh, canvasback. Really, it's as bigger. It's as bigger, bigger than a mallard, and flies the speed of a teal. Huh? Wow. See, that's, that's I don't even think we've ever seen one. I've never out. even had one while I'm hunting. Well, canvasbacks are not going to be in this area. They're a diving duck. They like deep ponds. And so we see them up in the northeast corner of the state. But they're going to swing down through the Dakotas, down through the hourglass in Nebraska. That's where you're going to see them. We'll occasionally see one he's lost in this part of the world. But yeah, And the canvasbacks, most people think, are the best eating. I still prefer the mallard. That's my own preference. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, a large percentage of what you're going to eat is going to be going to be mallard every year weather. But, I mean, there's a lot of guys down south that they're pulling limits of teal and wood duck more often than greenheads. So, I don't know. 
Yeah. I'd so, say I'd so, say a pintail is probably so this my favorite. Is, this is a question for somebody that's um obviously it's well known that Sean is not involved in the waterfowl world. Um as far as like, cause I know like, as far as like upland, when you get into Turkey and stuff, I know the distinction of region that different, like the, f- you know, the four main species or five main species are in, in, in the States with ducks. Are they everywhere or is it kind of the same as turkeys where you got to go somewhere to shoot a certain duck? Well, first off you, you can have, I have a lake place over in Western Montana and we had a, a pair of Eurasian schmoos on the lake. Now, how they got from Asia to Western Montana is beyond me. Obviously, on big wind current, right? Yeah. But for the most part, the the states have certain the flyways have certain birds. As an example, the Pacific Flyway that goes down, particularly through the Sacramento Valley, Central Valley, California, a lot of pintails down that way. And if you're which I've gone out to hunt out on like Cape Cod, there they have a lot of Atlantic brant. Well, you're never going to see Atlantic brant out here. It's just not going to happen. So, yes, it's similar. Although in Montana, you're going to have mallards, mergansers, goldeneye, blue-winged teal, green-winged teal, cinnamon teal. You're going to have pintails, canvasbacks, bluebills, both lesser scop, greater scop. You're going to have redheads, uh, ringnecks. We kind of get them all through here into Montana, not necessarily all down in the Billings area. Right. Yeah, and I'd say really the only like sought-after birds that you couldn't get through here would be like having to go up to Alaska to get um, Harlequin or Barrow's Goldeneye. Something like that would be tougher to get here. Well, I've, I've got a good story about our Barrow's Goldeneye. I shot one on the Bighorn River. Okay. Really? And it was a beautiful bird. Absolutely beautiful. We had a blind out on an island, and I shot this Barrow's Goldeneye, and I turned around, and I put him behind me, and we hunted the rest of the day, and when I turned around, my dog had eaten it. Oh, my oh. gosh. <laughs> I have a similar story to that. I Not as... That's pretty... <laughs> pretty crazy see these waterfowl guys are a different breed man you're gonna hear some stories today that um we my dad really loves mounts so we have dozens of mounts in the house oh, and name them all and uh i shot that green wing teal um hen that and i mounted her with the band on it so we have a bunch of double mounts right we have i have i still have a hen wood duck i've been trying to shoot it really nice drake for a long time but for the longest time i've just been trying so hard and i think i don't know if you think this is true or not but it's kind of hard to shoot a really plume like beautiful looking green wing teal around here drake for me it has been need to go to mexico that's when they're all plumed up oh yeah that's my problem (laughs) so the first time i find i in the weirdest thing we were hunting this channel and for the first time ever, I'd been given for Christmas like a, a dozen teal decoys, which I would never normally use, but we had them with us and they're just small. And I just, I was like, oh, what the heck? We threw them out there. And right before first light, we heard them f- fly into the decoys. And for some reason, Ramsey had his backpack and binoculars. <laughs> so he could look in there and we could see the most beautiful Drake I've ever seen. And I'm just 
I'm so ecstatic. Like I'm, I'm just waiting for shooting light. <laughs> and this thing, you can see he's swimming right towards where, I mean, within feet of where we're sitting. And so I'm like, oh, I, I'm, we're going to spook him. We're going to spook him. And shooting light comes and we go to like, you know, spook it up or something. And I walk out. He doesn't move. He's just sitting there. So I'm so excited about the time he flies up. I shoot and I go over there and I'm telling you, it was split in half. Like it was, it was yeah. the most disappointing. He hit it with 90% of the pattern of that shotgun. <laughs> like it was not fixable. It was like the most devastating thing. And then a couple years later, we got one on the big horn, thankfully. But, um, it was, it was funny because that's actually was my first duck ever is the, is the green wing hen that we have mounted. And we just put your band. Oh, on. that's right. I didn't mount the one that I had shot. <laughs> so the whole time I'm the, I like, I wanted to finish the mount. Like I wanted to shoot this, you know, uh, plumed out Drake and Riley shoots one beautiful bird and they get it mounted. And literally that next year we're on the big horn in the same spot. And I shoot one that's just even crazier. I've never seen it before. He had a black mohawk down the back of his head most beautiful bird i've ever seen in my life but we'd already got it mounted and so we just you know took the breast and whatever off of it and ate it like, oh man go figure i mean so what what really i guess i've gotten a good justification of what calls out for a, a wall hanger in a sense of a bird um what are you basically looking for like when if you were to go out like in a, in the case of like a like elk, obviously that's a wall hanger, right? When you go out for birds, I mean, what are you looking for to see on your wall? Drakes. Yeah, drakes. I think wall hangers. When it comes to birds, is more the hunt. It's a memorable bird. It was, as an example, I have a common eider from uh, Massachusetts. It's a common eider. We, you know, we went out there and shot limits every day. But we're not going to see another common eider. I'd like to shoot a king eider up in Alaska now to put with the common eider. But it's a matter of the hunt. And that's what it reminds you of. So it's not a matter of the size. The banded bird I shot from the Yukon, I wish I'd mounted only because it was a massive mallard. And it was banded. I didn't think about it, and, you know, instead it got consumed. But I, I, I don't think it's really about the size. Sometimes there's some beautiful birds you want mounted. As an example, when we were out in Massachusetts, one of the guys shot a black duck. You won't see a black duck out here. We mounted a black duck. Was it spectacular? Not particularly. But the fact of the matter, he shot a black duck. Right. And so he had it mounted. So there's things like... Uh like I'll talk about some of our mounts. Um, I have a lesser goose, which is like kind of hard to like, they're literally like a goose the size of a mallard. Um, and Ramsey got that and they have like short beaks. They look crazy. They're, they're Canadian geese, but they're called lessers. Um, and I've never seen one. Well, we've seen maybe a couple, but um, that was an uncommon thing. So that's why we got that one. Um, I just, I think the the driving force of us getting a lesser mounted was because they didn't take up so much damn room. <laughs> yeah. And then like that was a big thing for us is like my dad 
let us mount our first ducks. So we have our first mallards that are in his house. And then one of the coolest mounts we ever did, which is the only ones I've ever got, um, just because they were so beautiful, uh, we shot, we got into some snow geese a couple years ago, which in this portion of the state, it's not very common. Um, depending on the time of year, when we usually go out, they're not around. And one of the, the snow geese was a blue with a white head, which I thought was just the coolest thing I've ever seen. Cause he wasn't fully, you know, one way or the other. So we have those double mounted and then we have some cool stuff like, um, some golden eye that was just beautiful. Like sometimes you can get a gold Drake golden eye. They're a black and white duck, but they'll get like this gleaming green through the top. Yeah. And, uh, that's a cool, cool mount. So. Is that iridescent? Is that what they call that? I have no idea. That was, a yeah, it's word. an iridescent green head. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot to waterfowl. I know. Isn't it exciting? It's if cool. If you're on the outside looking in, I mean, realistically, it's like, would I say it's, I mean, it's the same. I mean, realistically, it's hunting. So, I mean, looking on the, like when you're like somebody that's not involved in it, it's obviously tough for you to kind of get into it and just get it right away. That's any hunting, but it's not the same as you going out and trying to on your first hunt and decide whether that's a bull elk or that's a cow elk. There's a huge difference in duck hunting. I feel like, Oh, and, well, and you get you... with some nuts like me and Riley and we'll tell you, and, and even Bruce, I'm sure is the same way. The, cause their, their wings, when they fly, they whistle. I can tell you what kind of duck it is sitting on the big horn, just by the way it's wings whistle without even seeing the bird. But a thing that you probably don't cons can, you know, people that are listening that don't do much of this. There is a lot of hard things to being a waterfowl hunter because you have to know bag limits. You have to know species limits and, um, you have to know what's coming in at Mach two before you shoot and depict the drakes from the hens. And so I would say a big thing about, which this might be a stupid comment, but identification as, as ducks as color is a huge thing, right? Well, color, but so when I used to go to Canada, you only shot brown ducks because they were all brown then. They had no plumage. So you had to be able to identify a duck by the shape in the air. They all have a unique beak. They have unique tails. They have a unique wing beak. You have to be able to do those things. Otherwise, you end up shooting something you shouldn't or something you didn't want to. Typically, we don't shoot hens of any species because, you know, the hens raise all the eggs, and so we tend to shoot drakes. Well, you don't want to shoot a hen by mistake. It happens all the time, but you need to identify the birds. So what's an easy classification to for, I mean, if you had to pick one species, how do you decide whether it's a drake or a hen? Well, the mallard's the easiest because the drakes have green heads. Okay. And they're just darker in general. Well, okay. and like when you're looking up, when you, look, you see birds coming in, a hen is very much brown, Okay. And what I like to look for in a, in, in a wing, I look in a wing. So mallards are a little bit white underneath, and that's kind of what I'm looking for is like a, like a drake mallard. It's pretty much white. Yep. So is there is there a species of, of duck that is actually kind of hard to to distinct male versus female? Teal. Teal. Yep. And, and how do you 
how do you decide if it's male or female with the teal? Would you say that usually you're just, if you're shooting teal, it's basically, it's almost impossible. Yeah, you're shooting teal. Yeah, it's not like you're shooting. So there's really no identification mid-flight that you can do. It's so hard. They're both pretty much, I mean, they have brown colors to them. I mean, uh, a Drake uh, green wing is going to have like brown on, their head's going to be brown with a, with a green. Um, I need to look this bird up while you're talking. Green wing teal? Yes. Um, this, see, this would be a great moment for us to use our TV that we've just put in the studio. Uh, <laughs> okay. So I'm okay. So they got the little white stripe down the kind of the broad side of the breast. Yeah, and, and they're so small. I mean, you're shooting a bird. They're this big. Yeah, they're about, you know, they're a little bigger than a robin. Yeah, you got to get a lemon of them just and, to get a meal. Yeah, and maybe two. <laughs> yeah. And they're fast. So, okay, fast. this is actually a good question. So in this... So I'm I'm just scrolling through pictures here. So this comes up. What is what? Why is that one different? If if you can see that, because that's a hen. That's a hen. That's a hen. So then in that case, that's a drake. Correct. Yep. So that's the distinction that you need to make. Okay. And the and the problem or the reality is not a problem. The reality, particularly with the teal, that in Montana they're an early bird, so they're not plumed up. A mallard will hang around till the end of the season. So might a canvas back. Okay. A pintail will not. Sean, do you understand when he's talking about plumed feathers? I would. I I kind of have gotten the idea of what you guys are meaning. Basically, it's this. This is fully plumed out. Well, I think Bruce would be able to like touch on this a little bit better than the, I can. But it's, it's about the hair molting, gel. It's about molting feathers and yeah. So birds molt. They can't fly. Sure. And then during that period of time, they come in with colorful feathers. The males do. The females stay brown. And so a male mallard will get this iridescent green head. It will get feather curls on the end of the tail. And they're a beautiful bird. But that's that's when they get fully plumed. Pintails up here, as an example, we typically don't see a good pintail up here. They don't get plumed up till they get to Mexico. You know, Occasionally, I'll hear someone, oh, I've got a, a shot one here, and I'm thinking, uh, it's probably out of season. You just didn't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> Pintail, yeah. Wow. They're the most beautiful duck on the planet, in my opinion. Well, they, they're I mean, kind they're of some, sleek. I mean, so. They have long tail feather. They have the green on the wing on the backside. Is that right? Yeah, they're, right a, be they're a beautiful bird. Or is that blue? I guess we can't really. Iridescent. Know. Iridescent. It's <laughs> a big word for the podcast. Yeah. And they have a blue beak or light. Ish. So what are your, your limits vary spe per species, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Um, Could you name it off the top of your head right now? Um, it, they vary every year. Uh, mallards, you can shoot five drakes. You can shoot three drakes or two hens. I think canvas backs were back up to two. We were at one. We may be able to shoot two. Teal, you get to shoot five. In fact, right now, season's still on this week, I believe. Seasons are really weird with waterfowl now. There, there's starts and stops in the middle of the season. That's something you have to be. If you're a waterfowl hunter, you have to you have to check your regulations. So, what's the idea behind that? Now, was that with Freeze Out Lake? Was that was that what the idea behind that was? No, that the idea behind it was a bunch of guys like me down here in Billings, who said we don't get our push of birds until January, and you close the season on us. So what we asked them to do was to open the season for a week and then close it for 10 days. 
or a week, whatever the number they decided, and then give us that in the backhand. So right now the season opened on Saturday, and I think it closes either Friday or Saturday here. This is in this region. If you're up in Medicine Lake, it's open. That's because, I don't know, even before I come back from Medicine Lake, it may be frozen solid, and the birds will all be gone, so you can't split their season. But we split ours because we wait for that big wave of particularly mallards to come out of Canada. And many times, that is literally the last week of the duck season here. Oh, yeah. So here's my... Here's my question to you on this then. Um, I have an idea why, but why don't why don't we just open it two weeks later every year and not have that first week? My the idea that I would have my reasoning would be because you wouldn't be able to shoot wood ducks, widgeon, and all that because they come through so early. But why why not just open it up two weeks later instead of having one off, one on? I I think that's a good question. We've asked the same question. I think it's a matter you've got a lot of early duck hunters who like to shoot the teal that say, you know, they'll be gone. We won't be able to shoot them. Now, the blue wing will be gone. The green wing will be here the entire season. That's a hardy little bird. They'll be here at a time. But a lot of guys like to get out. The other thing a lot of the guys like to do, and I should say gals as well, that's being a little chauvinistic on my part. Um, they want to hunt before the big game season opens. Because most, at least when I hunted big game in earnest, I never hunted ducks during big game season. No waterfowl. That was big game season. And then we start again. So I wanted to hunt my, you know, I wanted to hunt those first week or so, back in those days, two weeks, um, before big game season opened. Then I'd take a break and then we'd go back at it. So I, I think they're, they have to balance that. That's a good point because I think back to, when I was in high school and when we were, we were big into waterfowl hunting, that's what we were doing in October. It wasn't bow hunting, you know, before we started bow hunting when we were like 16, uh, that's what we were doing before big game yeah. season. That's a good point. I, I've, you know, when you, when you start hunting in August for early season antelope, you start for, you forget the, the bird seasons in between. Yeah. Cause now we're basically a, a December, January guys now. And Sean got us into ice fishing last year, so we we've been hunting ducks a little. We bit. We actually did a ducks unlimited tournament. The was the f- first time that you went out. That was the first time I ever went ice fishing. Was the first annual. Were you involved in that at all? Was that ice fishing? The, uh, I, I I wasn't there, but yeah, they the Canyon Ferry. That yeah. was the yeah that that tournament is is tough. It is crazy though. I tell you what, that we showed up and. How many participants? They, there was over, what, 400? That was the first year. I think there was more last year that even those meat eater guys were there last year. Yeah. Yeah, I think they said six or 700 last year. And you know what was crazy? You know how many fish were turned in the year that we went? 22. That's it. We, we I I tell you what, because these, these two hadn't really been into ice fishing and stuff, and I... I kind of felt like shit because I I took the role of guide because I'm I'm actually I'm from I'm from Great Falls so I I've ice fished that lake plenty of times and for walleye trout and everything and I I knew I was like well and it was it a walleye tournament or was it just a fish tournament it was walleye and perch yeah so essentially from my knowledge of that lake for how often I've ice fished it I know that the Basically, where the turn-in was, I'm not going to give specifics. Where the turn-in was, where we checked in, that's trout, 100% trout only. The other side of the lake, 
that whole stretch is a hit or miss. You need to find a spot. And I took us to essentially my honey hole through the ice on that place. And I think I marked four fish on the on the Vexlar that entire day. <laughs> Nothing was coming up. And the problem was is the actual – my best spot on that lake was way down closer to the dam. But the problem was is there was a huge pressure ridge that they shut that side of the lake off because I think a guy sunk a, almost – They threw – no, they put an ATV through the water. Yeah, there. he almost sunk his four-wheeler. And, and – you know, pressure ridges are one thing. Can you cross them? Yeah. Is it smart? Maybe not. I mean, <laughs> most of my time I've had luck with just send it. You'll be oh, okay. No. Here we are, October, and we got Sean on ice fishing again. Uh -oh. <laughs> but, I mean, I, just, I, seriously, about. I seriously felt terrible taking these guys out there because I'm like, no. Because they would always ask. They were asking me, like, I've never fished this lake before. And even, like, even Josh, who's a outstanding outdoorsman, didn't have any. I mean, he did. He never ice fished really, right? No. And he went. He never out there. caught a fish to the ice till we took him to Fort Peck this year. And I failed him hard, and it, <laughs> none of us caught fish. And I was like, "This is." We we fished hard. I mean, we all day long until it was dark out. I mean, I we can't fished. tell you how many holes I put through Canyon Ferry that we and that ice was the thickest I've ever seen it. I mean, we were cutting through at one point eighteen. Oh yeah. 18 to 20 and i walked probably a mile in every direction drilling holes putting putting vexlar out and nothing i mean it just it okay we're I, gonna, all right we're, we gonna, gotta get, get we're gonna get up ice fishing we're gonna go back to ducks <laughs> the reason i brought this up was uh so for the last couple of years we've been really not duck hunting like we usually do i think i've gone twice in the last two years which is weird crazy for us and this year, all of a sudden, I don't know what a, a bug bit me, and I want to. I think we're going to go out. I, I want to get Sean out for the first time. Definitely. I will say that because I was the first time that I actually went turkey hunting this year, and that was a blast. I mean, it really spring turkey is like Riley. I mean, he told me he goes, "It's the closest thing you can get to archery elk." I mean, it yeah, really and same thing with duck hunting too. If I don't know if you could. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna duck hunt this year. I suggest you hit the rivers. I that's where I'm seeing most of the birds. Um, don't make too much fun of him when he misses all the time, because <laughs> that's what'll happen. That's okay. Don't worry, we'll give you a mojo, and you won't miss. Give me your high point, and I probably won't miss. <laughs> well, I had I had an old friend. He's he, he's passed since then, but he came over from Canyon Ferry area. And he came to hunt ducks with us. His name was Oli. And I took him on the bighorn, and we were having a heck of a hunt. And Oli does a fans, face plant in the horn. Oh, no. Oh, geez. At temperature of about 10. So we made fun of him for a very long time. <laughs> so don't worry about it. <laughs> Just don't make that face plant in the river. You'll be good. I think, the, I mean, the main reason that I really, I, I didn't have anybody in my life that was really into it. So I think that's because I, I honestly shot a shotgun. I could count on one hand before I met you guys realistically. Well, well and I think I, and the funny thing is we haven't even touched on everything yet about waterfowl hunting and you know, there's decoys, there's calls, there's robotic decoys. 
you know, there's a lot that goes into it that a lot of people, I mean, when I talk about it being a whole other ball game, it, it really is. Yeah, the and until someone takes you, Montana is a big game state. So to not have been duck hunting, to pick, go get a shotgun and go out and duck hunt, that's not something you're going to do. It's just not realistic. If you go hunt a river, you need a dog. And you need all these decoys. I mean, I like I was saying earlier before we started, I was out getting my trailer ready. I know full well there's a thousand decoys in my trailer. I don't know why I need a thousand, but I'm sure I do. And then you've got to have waders and you have to have the dogs. And by the way, you probably should have a couple different sets of waders because early season you need ones that aren't insulated, but later you need ones that are insulated. And by the way, you need two or three shotguns. You know, you need one for ducks and you need one for geese and one's going to break anyway. So you need a spare one and it goes on and on and you need all sorts of calls because you never know what call is going to work. And every duck sounds different, so you have a different call for every duck. So, yes, it's – and if you're in the south where they truly duck hunt compared to what we do, you know, they have hours they hunt. I went down there, and they said, we hunt from whenever the sun comes up to 10 o'clock in the morning because at 1030 the football game's on and we don't hunt. I mean, it, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's a ritual that goes on. Yeah, and people get crazy. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen videos and stuff, but there's guys in the, the South and the Midwest that got, I don't know, $200,000 duck blinds and oh, yeah. and kitchens and stuff. That, I mean, it's it's uh, it's way different Flat hunting. screen TVs and the bunkers with couches. and It takes you a little bit away. That takes me a little bit away from the whole spirit of the, of the whole thing. But I, I would say, um, see if you agree with me on this. I, duck hunting was what first got me into... Um, my love for calling animals and, you know, getting good, you know, you spend hours and hours and hours learning how to duck call. Um, it's just as rewarding to me as calling in an elk. Yeah. I, th I think to call in a duck, um, over decoys is very difficult and good callers can do it, but even on good callers on days, couldn't bring a duck in for love nor money. It just wouldn't happen. And most good callers or most duck hunters have a little whistle. It's interesting how t many times a, just a tweet will turn a duck right back to you. And it's, you know, it's a whistle that a pintail may make. But it's just a little whistle. But it, And it's tough. The, the goose callers, I've only known two or three really good goose callers in my life. I mean, these are guys that when the goose is coming in, as, as my one friend would have said, he said, I just love calling a goose when they turn and look at me and go, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they know they've been had. But again, it's only two or three I've ever been around. I was around the number two goose caller in the nation one day, kid out of Utah, and we used to host a bunch of Utah DU folks up here. And he, went, he ended up number two in the nation in the contest. He couldn't call a goose in that day for love nor money. <laughs> Just the way it was. Yeah. It's it's tough. Would you would you I, I'm gonna make a statement. I want the duck hunters in the room to see if they would agree with me. When you get a even three or four mallards cupped up, dumped into your decoys, do you get the same feeling you get 
as like seeing a big mature mule deer or a bull or something like that. Like that same like like just oh my heart gets racing. That's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, when it when the when a mallard or one of the ducks cups up, you know it's I think it's better than big game hunting. They cup up and it's just amazing. They're coming in and there's only one thing in my opinion better than that, and that's when you're getting when you have some geese that are hard on for coming into the decoys and they start doing backflips and front flips and spins and they fall out of the sky and stuff I, I'm I'm assuming you've never seen before. Unreal stuff that just literally that gets your heart pumping. Yeah, a goose and all and all species will do it. Though let's say they're up in the air a hundred yards at this point and they want to come down on top of you into your spread, they gotta break that wind. So they'll flip over. And they'll flip over. First time I ever tried to shoot one of those in Canada was a snow goose, and I turned the guy who something was, how am I supposed to hit this thing? <laughs> I don't know where it's going. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that noise that geese make when they're coming, that <laughs> I love that. You didn't know there was all these sounds and, and things. That, I mean, it's, it's a whole it's a whole thing, just like any other hunting. But uh, it's cool. to love it. There's two things. Do you guys have any questions that you want to touch on? Because there's two things that I'd like to get from Bruce before we leave tonight. And one being, uh, could you touch on us maybe about like your life is in conservation? I want to I want to hear some stories about conservation or maybe you have your favorite or most, you know, that made you the most proud conservation story that you've ever had. Or I don't know, just give us a DU's mission on on conservation. So let me give you a couple facts. First off, Dee is very proud that we have now conserved over 15 million acres of ground in North America. Montana, I believe the number is, well, let me see if I can get the number here for you. Because I was actually kind of surprised at it myself. We have... Well, we have spent in Montana $28 million. The number one county in the United States is Phillips County. There are more DU projects in Phillips County than any county in the United States. That's part of the prairie pothole. Wow. And so I'm a conservationist, and I suppose I'm going to offend somebody now. I'm not an environmentalist. And there's a difference in my opinion. Environmentalists have a cause that they have to win. So to me, they tend to be win-lose people most of the time. You know, we got to save the snail darter. We got to save this, no matter what the cost. Conservationists, particularly DU, we believe there has to be a meeting of the minds. So when ethanol was the big product, and they were tearing up the prairies, these are virgin prairies, and they were tearing up the plant corn, only because corn was subsidized. We came out with a saying that said, farmers, you farm the best and we'll conserve the rest. We did, a, we did a study in Canada, an experiment, if you would, where we fence cows out of the water holes, out of these little swamps and potholes. And then we pump that water into water tanks. But they still had to get water, right? The weight gain in the cattle was 15% because they drank clean water. So it's a win-win deal. So as me as a conservationist, that's why I'm so passionate about what Ducks does. We do win-wins. 
I can go on and on. I can tell you how we help a farmer transfer his property or a rancher, either one, to the next generation where they can afford it. We do easements and some other things that help take the value out of that property. That value goes to the current owner, but now he can pass it on to his kids. And they don't have to spend these high prices. And they don't have the tax consequences. We do all the sorts of win-win. But if you'd asked me what my proudest conservation, interestingly enough, it wasn't with Ducks Unlimited. Years ago, I got a call from the Warner College Natural Resources at Colorado State. And they came to see me and they wanted to know if I would fund a chair, a designated chair in waterfowl and wetland management for them. And I kind of laughed because a dollar a month they wanted was not near something I was going to have. They said, would I help? And I said, yes, I'd help. And so I knew a guy who knew a guy. And ultimately, we ended up with a $5 million endowed chair at Colorado State. So that chair is now teaching waterfowl and wetland students how to conserve this. How do you, how do you properly handle the water levels if you're on a refuge? When should you drain the water? When you should you raise it? You know, when should you hay it or allow cattle in to graze it? We're teaching that next generation so that this conservation ethic and knowledge can go on. And that's quite honestly my proudest moment. That's awesome. Um, we know Bruce from the Boy Scouts. That's what we grew up. I mean, 15 15 years ago, probably. Um, and I do remember your son's Eagle project was a conservation project for wetlands. Um, I have never personally been able to go back and check that out. How did that turn out? It was, we, we did wood duck boxes, if I remember correctly, right? No, it was a informational kiosk. Oh yes. Okay. On a, on a wetland, the wetlands there, it has been, the actual project has been back a little bit due to the need for other projects. It's huntable. It's a uh, block management deal right now. But the actual restoration, the best of my knowledge, has not yet taken place. Okay. I was always curious about that because it had so much potential and uh, it was a cool area. Oh, yeah. um, and stuff like that has always been very interesting to me too. And, you know, I bring up the Boy Scout thing. You do a lot of conservation and uh stuff in that as well so i was kind of grew up grew up kind of like how you are passionate about conservation it's something that interests me as well and uh yeah the well i can't say enough good about the boy scouts in general i obviously the two of your eagles caleb was an eagle um, i think the skills you learn are tremendous you know whether you agree or disagree where they ended up heading different issue but i think ultimately particularly when i was an eagle and up through when you guys were and caleb was i think it was an organization that truly trained young men on the outdoors and how to take care of themselves and maybe most most importantly i think it taught them about respect oh absolutely oh, yeah. absolutely and uh yeah so i i think it was it was cool to to go from that lifestyle of, you know, you were drilled into you when you were in that organization about conservation and 
respecting uh the land and uh stuff like that to being you know ramsey and i've been you know on a much smaller scale than you uh members of ducks unlimited our whole lives and it's been something we've we've also you know i would be a member till the day i die because i i do love what they stand there's there's some organizations out there that don't do you know as much as they could for their species of concern whereas i feel like ducks unlimited is something that i would stand behind for a very long time well, first off, no one in Ducks Unlimited does a small role. Every member is does as important role as any other member. It's just a matter of what they can do. Well, some members can do more, some can do less. And the thing is, is there's no other organization like the U in in the world. I there I, really isn't. As a close second, I mean Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation would be the closest second. I don't I don't even think there's a close second. I think all the Rocky Mountain Elk, I think pheasants, the Nature Conservancy, I think they all do good work in what they do. Ducks Unlimited's scope is the entire North American continent. Rocky Mountain Elk, I don't think have a lot of elk down in Mexico. Maybe they do. I just don't think so. Right. Uh, it's the entire North American continent. And when you think about it, we write, we don't, but I mean, there is written the North American Waterfowl Plan. Well, that was written by a gentleman by the name of Jim Ringelman, who was out in North Dakota. Jim was a good friend of mine. He wrote the plan. And that's for the ducks coming from the Arctic Circle, actually and above, because the snow geese actually breed above the Arctic Circle, all the way down, quite honestly, into South America. It's, it's, it's a totally different concept. It's not a backyard concept. It's a continental concept. Yeah, I mean, so, you're dealing with an animal that, that flies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it flies far. So right. it's, it's something, you know, you, you like to talk about the, the mule deer migration that Absolutely. you researched, which is an amazing thing. To, uh, mule deer migrate further and longer than most any other species in North America. But now put in that perspective, an animal that goes that can three or four times that distance. You know that na or that uh, old saying is the crow flies. They, <laughs> you know. So I mean, I can tell. I, I can imagine that uh, it's a global almost deal with uh, when it comes to ducks and things like that. I mean, it's just. It, oh yeah, we don't even touch the base of like Asian ducks and stuff like that. I guess there's Asian ducks in Montana that he's seen before. Yeah. Yeah. Little off their flight path. Yeah, but. I think so. That's yeah, there's a. I've seen. There's one weird duck I've seen personally. I can't even think of what they call it. They have teeth, but I can't think of what. Cormorant. Uh, Cormorant. I've seen one of those before. That's not. That's is that a North American duck? Oh, they're all over the Yellowstone and the Missouri, and okay, they're a protected species. So don't shoot the big black duck. No, don't shoot that. <laughs> um, it's just kind of crazy to think about, like that. Yeah, someday look up. Uh, what do they call them? Double crested camera. No, no. Look up a. Uh, if you want to talk about the most beautiful duck on the planet, harlequin. No, what is the Asian wood duck? Oh, I know which one you mean. I can't think of what they're called. Oh man, don't worry. Look that up someday. That'll make you want to shoot a a wood duck. Well, wood duck themselves are pretty. I guess my last thing for you, Bruce. Um, unless you have Mandarin? questions for Mandarin, Mandarin duck, duck, that's what it is. Holy uh, cow! Aren't they beautiful? Is that real? That's yeah. real. Yeah. yeah, that's real. It's got a beard. 
Have you ever seen a wood duck? No. Go look up a wood duck. You can shoot those. And There's, that is a real bird? Yeah. yeah. 100%. Holy cow. Um, so, yeah, my last thing for you would be... And I have wanted, these in Montana. I've shot one of those. Jeez. Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, and they make the goofiest sound on the planet. They do. <laughs> is that uh, how it goes? Yeah, it's simple. even crazier than that. <laughs> we'll play some later. How do you call for them? With a whistle. whistle. Yep. Jinx. Yummy. I have one. You've showed me. Yeah. Isn't that funny that Bruce talked about the whistle after we just talked? And about I it? literally was at uh, their place of work, and Ramsey pulled out. Well, Riley pulled out their lanyard first, and then, of course, these two when they get anything with each other, it's. A I'm telling you, when I was in high school, I had my old '88 Chevy. Right. It had a lanyard on the mirror at all times with all of my duck calls on it. And I would sit at the parking lot before and after school and just annoy the shit out of other people. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I'm such a proficient duck caller now. All right. All right. I have my last thing for Bruce I have, here. I have the same thing with my wife as far as out calling. And, and me. <laughs> I have Ramsey and I've been waterfall hunting for much less time than you, but for a long time, um, since we were probably four, I was 15, so I'm 20, 12 years. Um, and there was years of good hunting and years of bad hunting, but I've noticed a trend in the last three years. And this is in our region here where it almost, and I'm, tr- I've been trying, I'm a guy that likes to talk about theory all the time, okay. whether my theory is massively incorrect or, or not. I like to, I like to strategize in my head. And it seems like the last three years, the duck hunting has been tough. It's been hard. And it's almost, and I always, you know, you're like, well, the weather, the it froze too early here or it did this too early. Have you been noticing this yourself or has it not really changed where you've been? It's changed since the 70s. Okay. It's been a continual change um, in in. The flyway, particularly the late flyway, used to come right down the Bighorn River. And in the late, early, in the mid to late 70s, early 80s, you didn't have to put decoys out. You could go sit in the river, and there would be hundreds of birds on your head all the time. Well, in those days, the Bighorn was full of corn. Now it's full of sugar beets. Now we have lots of geese. So I think that's part of it. But the other part is that I truly think the flyway, the central flyway, which we're on the edge of here, because if you go over to about Mission Creek, that's where the Pacific flyway starts. So now we're only talking 80, 100 miles from here, Pacific starts. It's shifted over to the Dakotas. And so those, those ducks and geese, particularly the ducks, they're going down through the Dakotas now. That's one of the reasons I go to the northeast corner. We can kind of catch some of them. Right. But, it, no, it's it's not your imagination. The whole thing shifted. The other thing we don't have is that we don't have those harsh winters we used to have that, well, out in the Broadview country where Comanche Flats to Broadview was all water. And we raised, I mean, we raised thousands and tens of thousands of ducks. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. And we don't have those hard winters, and we're not building up that water. That That's a weather phenomenon, yes. But even without that, the, the whole flyway, I think, has shifted to the east. Well, and I, I remember days that, that I would, 
you know, that I live for as a waterfowl hunter. And that would be days where you're out hunting and it's overcast and you look up and all you're seeing all day long is thousands of high flying migratory birds for, for an entire morning. And all you're doing is pulling singles, doubles, quads out of it. I've had one, maybe two days like that in the last five years where it used to be, you could catch it for a couple of weeks around Christmas time beginning of January and it's just like that's what's really turned me off as a waterfowl hunter is just like I felt like I was catching more local birds than I was migratory birds deep into the season we have now I guess we'll see what's like this year traditionally we have seen that there is a push of mallards on election day that you know that first week in November a push of mallards comes through and then you don't see anymore and then you don't see them until literally the last week of the season they're coming down. I think part of that's because Canada didn't freeze. Part of it's because I blame my friends up in Glasgow because the dam doesn't freeze and below the dam the river doesn't freeze and they have all those wheat fields. Right. And those birds don't want to leave there. I mean, so they all come down. I give them a bad time. They send me pictures every day after 15 minutes of hunting they're limited out yeah (laughs) (laughs) but i i do i don't i think you're right it's shifted that way on the other hand we're seeing a lot more lesser geese in this country we ever have we're seeing graders and because of the um, golf courses we have the true large geese uh, that we would never have the giants those are a golf course geese um, they're not, I mean, it's a different species, but they, they're mainly from the golf courses. That's what saved the graders. We see snows now. We would have never seen snows in this country. Last year, up in the northeast corner, we had a spectacular speckle belly hunt. Yeah. Every single day we shot specks. It was spectacular. Mm-hmm. You just don't see that. Right. So I, I, I think the geese are coming. The cranes are really coming. Oh, yeah. I see them all over the place now. And so it's it's going to be a different kind of waterfowling. And, yes, you're going to have those two or three days in the river when the mallards are in. And the ducks are in, and you're going to say, oh, it's just like it used to be. And then the next day, they're gone. Yep. <laughs> it's just the way it is. You know, yeah. and sorry to interrupt, there but I, I, I don't want to sound like the guy that shows up for the first time for duck calling and wants to try calling. Um, I have kind of a dumb question. And, I mean, I have a... I have a good idea what you're meaning when you say this, but I just want to get a little more background on, on like the flyways. I just want to know a little bit more about those. So you have the Pacific flyway, which takes in the Pacific coast and actually most all of Western Montana to over about mission Creek and goes down. And in that you have some subcategories of flyways that include the mountains. That's kind of a different type of deal going down the Rockies. Then you have the central flyway, which is where the vast majority of the ducks are. You know, that they're coming out of the prairie potholes and they're going down through the Dakotas and they're going down through what they call the hour, hourglass in Nebraska and into Kansas. And then they're going down into the Texas panhandle, you know, and down into the Gulf. You then, you also have the Mississippi flyway when those birds are coming down the Mississippi and that's a legendary flyway. You know, absolutely legendary. And then you have the uh, or the Atlantic Flyway. 
where those birds are coming down the Atlantic outside of the Mississippi flyway. So there's really four flyways in the United States. There's some subcategories in certain areas, but these are the birds that they have tracked. You talked about the bands. That's how they've tracked the birds. Okay. Here they come. And you could like look at this on a map. It's like basically if the ducks had their own United States, it would be divided into four states sections of you could look at where this basically the boundaries are for sure. what would be class. I mean, of course, there is no real boundary. It's just that is where the birds are coming through on their migrate their migration routes. So basically, right. that's that's these flyways is where you see the birds come through. I mean, it's it's a kind of an annual thing. I mean, it right. happens. It, they're, they're migrating. Yeah. Right. Um, cause what, what you probably don't realize is there are ducks that are, let's just talk about Billings, Montana. There are ducks that are in Billings, Montana from January 1st to December 31st every single year. That's what they call local ducks. There are, you can actually tell the diff quite a bit of difference between a local bird and a migrating bird. A migrating bird's going to, you know, like, let's talk about a mallard. They're going to be a lot more. They're going to be bigger, first of all, correct? They're, they're going to be bigger. And yep. their color is going to be better. Yep. Um, and they always talk about the feet thing where someone, someone help me on this because I don't want to get it backwards. Well, the, they say, and I don't know if it's true, but migrating birds have brighter feet because when they're flying so long, all the blood settles down into their feet and makes the color pop. I don't know if that's true. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't doubt that because they do. The, the migrating birds' feet are very bright. Whereas like a local <clears throat> one, they would say they'd be like yellow or a light. Less yellow. orange. Yeah. That makes sense. Did that answer your question on flyways? No, it did. Yeah, I just did. I, I mean, obviously, I, when you say the term flyway, it, it's kind of a common sense thing where you look at it and you kind of understand it's it's the path of travel that certain species take. And um, just to get a little bit more background on that, I mean, for a guy who has, you know, never indulged in any of yeah. but it. But it's more important than that because the flyway, you manage them each differently. You may manage them for a different species or species, but they also have different needs. So ducks coming down the central have one need. The Mississippi have another weed need in the Atlantic have a totally different need. And so as you're managing for these species, you have to know their needs. And so it's not as if we can manage all of North America the same way. We can't. The, the birds that come down the Pacific into the Central Valley, California, they need the rice fields. And so right now, California's in a drought. This is going to be a real problem for the pintails. They're going to get down there, and there aren't going to be flooded rice fields for them. So how are they ever going to get to Mexico? They may not, let alone get back up to Canada somewhere. Yeah, and ducks don't have McDonald's, so when they get down there and there's no <laughs> rice, they die. Yeah, they die. They just And if they get back up to the breeding fields and the hens are thin... They're not going to breed. It's kind of a, it, it really is just like a nationwide conservation effort to yeah. make sure these species have what they need to continue. Would you say if there wasn't a massive reform for conservation, would there be extinct ducks today? 
I don't know if the ducks would be extinct, but there would not be the skies full of ducks. Right. There's no question about it. If if this group of gentlemen, 1937, had decided that they, it's called the Big Marsh, which is up, was up, I believe, in Manitoba, had not gone in and figured out how to handle this to begin with, how to create waterfowl areas, our duck population would not be what it is. Uh, if for no other reason we face it the market hunter shot them out I mean, that was part of what happened and then the drought took care of them, the rest of them and so they were in dire straits and ducks unlimited group of gentlemen who formed ducks unlimited stepped in and from there it was history so i mean off the top of your head how many as far as Montana? i mean ducks you see in montana how many of them are in ex- going extinct that you can't shoot uh none of them i'm aware of none so that's obviously a proud moment for somebody like you yeah. that is a conservationist. Well, I would say most populations are in a, a positive. Most population, yes, they are. There, there are a few. The lesser scop has been of concern. The pintail has been a concern. Um, interestingly enough, though, uh, particularly in Canada, some of the farmers up there were very brave when we asked them to raise winter wheat, and they were spring wheat guys. And you know, telling asking a farmer to change his ways is you know, testing his uh, his metal, so to speak. And they did, and that really helped the pintail because they need that stubble to nest in. And so rather than getting plowed up when they want to nest, they have stubble to nest in. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a tremendous organization, and we have tremendous partners. The farmers, the ranchers, they're just great partners. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into it. It's pretty cool. It's, I, I bet you would you could sit down with any animal though, and there's a there's people out there doing oh, very similar things. But it's amazing to know what goes into, and I think this brings us right around to what is most important is is hunters and conservationists. I mean, without us, this wouldn't this stuff wouldn't be here. Your animals, and that's why people people just don't understand. I feel like you know we're just out killing stuff. You know, Hunter, hunters are the greatest conservationists. We have animals because of hunters, not in spite of hunters. Exactly. It's a pretty simple deal. So do you boys have anything else for Bruce? All my questions have been answered. Awesome. Do you have anything for us at all? No, I thank you very much for having me on, though. No, we I thank appreciate you. it. I don't think we even got everything. I, I still have a million questions, but uh, we are we are right at probably maximum capacity. But maybe we can get you on another time and and have some more questions because that was uh, that was very informative, phenomenal. I think and it's it was worth a part two for Bruce. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. More than willing to come back. I I can talk days about the ducks. So yes, so we'll th- at least give you hunting season before we call you back. <laughs> okay, yeah, maybe you, can, <laughs> maybe you can share some new stories with us from your 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 new trip. I your, can do that. So uh, I think that's all for us today. Um, as always, make sure to check out the BMB store at bullmountainbrothers.com. We do have our new merch on there now. Um, we have camo long sleeve shirts for $35 and forest green dry fits for $30. Uh, new, hats, stuff. new hats should be here anytime soon. I have a new idea for, for a shirt I'd like to run by the boys. We'll see if I can get it passed or not. But um, until then, check out our Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and... Uh, We'll catch you on the next one. See ya. Later. Two Leggings Outfitters out of Hardin, Montana is your one-stop shop for the best hunting and fishing adventures Montana has to offer. If you're looking for fishing adventures, big game hunting, 
bird hunting, and much more, get a hold of Dave or Patty at Two Leggings Outfitters, 406-665-2825. Book the adventure of a lifetime today. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bull Mountain Brothers. Hey, if you're looking for more Bull Mountain Brothers, be sure to follow us on TikTok and Instagram at bull underscore mountain underscore brothers and Facebook and YouTube at Bull Mountain Brothers. Also, don't forget to check out our B&B store at bullmountainbrothers.com where you can find some super sweet deals on some seasonal merchandise and outdoor gear.